Bigfoot Society would like to thank the following sponsors for helping make the podcast possible. The Singular Fortean Society has combined open and honest paranormal investigation and journalism since 2016. Visit the Society at Singular Fortean for all the latest weird news and more. Come with us and investigate the impossible. Lauren Smith is the hostess for Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio, which has been on air for over a decade and has completed over 300 shows. Lauren brings with her a unique viewpoint given that she is not only the daughter of one of the veteran female Bigfoot researchers in the South, but she has been conducting field research since she was a preteen some 20 years ago. Nightcallers is a Bigfoot world favorite, and along with interviewing researchers and witnesses, often features interviews with guests from the documentary film and entertainment industry. Lauren also does a vidcast segment called Nightcallers, which features real encounters sent in by viewers. You can find all of this and more at nightcallersproductions.com. Welcome to the Bigfoot Society Clubhouse, where we discuss a new or old topic in cryptozoology every week. Just hang out and have a good time. I do need to let you know that by hanging out with us on stage and talking in the discussion, you are giving consent to uh, being recorded, which will be used in a future Bigfoot Society podcast, uh, YouTube video, could be anything that you could imagine coming down the pipeline. Uh, if you're not comfortable with that, uh, please go ahead and move on down to the audience. Uh, sit back, relax, have a good time. Again, thanks to all for uh, hanging out, and uh, let's just have a good time. All right, well, thanks for uh, hanging out with us. Uh, this is the Bigfoot Society uh, Clubhouse Room, and we are going to be talking about the Patterson-Gimlin film tonight. We've got a few people hanging out with us, uh, as you will find in a few minutes. Um, of course, we are talking about the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film that was filmed around 1.40 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time on 10-20-1967. Um, and of course you've probably seen those iconic images, but, uh, it goes to say, is it real or is it fake? And we're just people talking on clubhouse and having a good time, but we're going to give our, uh, thoughts about, about what we think either way. Um, I definitely had some interesting, uh, research looking into this. I'll say first, there's many different things I'll have, um, linked in the show notes for this there's uh, an article that greg brought up from the relict hominid inquiry which is a fantastic read and uh, i even went as far as to um, <laughs> watch the danny perez interview from uh, i want to say 1996 when he does his talk at uh uh, it was a sasquatch conference and this is at, on a sasquatch archives youtube but Danny does a uh, an hour and a half talk where it's him taking the side of being um, not a not for the um, Patterson Gimlin film and there's about 16 points I wrote down about like um, <laughs> this is this is why it might not be real but he was kind of doing it uh, you know as a uh, he personally believes it's real but um, yeah. Uh, Let's let's get right into it. Of course, does uh, does anyone want to start out with um, anything interesting they uh, they had regarding this? 
we got people coming up. So I'm going to start. Um, actually, I want to make sure no one on stage has anyone to say first before I start bringing people up. So feel free if anyone has something I mean, to I say. Can, yeah, go I ahead, just, Alex. I can add a little thing, yeah. Yeah. I hope everyone's doing well. I apologize if I sound like I've just been hit by a train. I, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I just got back from a trip into the Pacific Northwest in Washington, hanging out with the Olympic Project. And that's kind of a little bit something I wanted to mention just regarding the PGF film. Um, I think I personally lean more towards it being real, but I don't think it really matters what my opinion is or others' opinions are on the PGF film because I think the impact it's had on the Bigfoot field, just Bigfoot as a pop cultural icon is already there. Almost every picture of Bigfoot, you know, whether it's artistic or, uh, you know, all, all kinds of depictions of Bigfoot, it's that famous frame where it's that with the paddy walk, as they say. I mean, that's just everywhere. So the impact the film has had is has been profound on this subject. And, and whatever happens to it going forward, I mean, it's been so many years and we haven't really had a whole lot on it. Obviously, Tate can talk more about what groups like the Bluff Creek Project podcast uh, or, or the Bluff Creek Project rather do regarding the film site and trying to find it and you know, preserve the site and maybe do some future analysis. There's actually a guy, I don't know if Tate knows him or not, but um, his name was Isaac. He works with the Olympic Project as a, um, he does some computer science related stuff. I think that's what his background is in. And he's actually done some work with Bill Munns, who has done a lot of work on the PGF film, uh, probably the most amount of work of, of any individual specifically on that film. And his whole point, you know, talking to him was he's trying to kind of figure out, you know, what they can take from that film. And if they're able to maybe replicate it at some point, uh, you know, if when technology keeps progressing, obviously it's been so many years since that film, as I said, I mean, in the 1960s when it was taken, I think it's kind of interesting that we haven't able we haven't been able to reproduce it to the uh, way it was then yet, even with all our modern technology. But um, you know, maybe Tate can talk to his uh, relative Bob Hieronymus there and kind of get to the truth there. Uh, I'm just kidding, Tate. Um, but yeah, so I think whatever happens to the PGF film, if it's thoroughly debunked or not, I don't think it'll make a difference because there's there's always going to be people on the fence. I think the general population sort of thinks, well, you know, the PGF film, it's obviously a guy in a costume. People just haven't done research on the film or the circumstances. There's obviously sketchy circumstances that, you know, I think speak ill of the film. Um, but there's plenty of other circumstances that I think add credibility. So it's it's a very it's a toss up situation. Like I said, I personally just don't think that whatever happens to it, it won't really sway the Bigfoot subject all that much. It won't be like, oh, here, this was proven fake. That means you know, most of Bigfoot is bunk. I don't think that's going to happen. So, yeah, that's just my two cents, so to speak. Alex, I think that's a really, um, a really great um, thought. Where I, I think the focus on Sasquatch would still be there, even if there wasn't the Patterson Gimlin film. Like, I mean, doing starting to get more and more into the subject. I mean, still at the end of the day, there's still all these these amazing uh, legends and stories and, and passed down oral history about Sasquatch. And this is before, you know, this film was, was made by Roger Pattison. And I mean, yeah, it, there's more to Bigfoot than this film, but this film is so iconic for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. And just to add to that, I mean, as you're mentioning, I think the subject is goes well beyond it. Obviously, PGF film is so well known. But, you know, as I said, I was just in the Olympics with uh, the Olympic project. And I mean, just the, hearing the stories and the Sasquatch lore left and right. I mean, it's just unbelievable. We, you know, we went to these nest sites that the Olympic project has um, has discovered and kind of been studying for the past six years. And I mean, there's almost no doubt in my mind what created those uh, being Sasquatch and, you know, just knowing the circumstances and going to those sites and seeing how difficult it is to even move five feet in those areas. Uh, it's just, it, it kind of opened a new perspective on the topic for me. You know, I was always more in the believer camp having had experiences myself, but that really kind of just pushed me over. So like I said, I think whatever happens to the PGF film, it'll always be at that part of the Bigfoot history, uh, whether it's you know, proven real or not, or if it just remains kind of like in its limbo status as it sort of is now. I absolutely agree with you on that. I think no matter what, it's still made such a huge impact on pop culture and like, you know, our world as we know it. But my personal opinion is I definitely do think it's real. And what sold me on it was like um, the analysis that Jeff Meldrum did on the way that the back muscles contract as it's walking across the frame. Um, and I like think about it all the time. I think it's really interesting um, that he was able to, to really like zone in on that and be like, okay, well you can see how the muscles work together and how they contract and how they, how they move. Um, and that's not something you would be able to really see underneath a suit. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. Otherwise, I fully agree with you, Alex. Yeah, Kenzie, I think that's a that's a great point. You know, looking into uh, what kind of suits were available at the time of filming of that, and then, I mean, you're looking at these different versions of the film, and you can definitely see muscles moving. And I mean, uh, there was even a. Um, I want to say on the upper, th upper thigh. Uh, no, I'm terrible with with muscles, guys. This is not my forte. Yes, you know what I'm talking thigh. about, though, because I talked to Meldrum about it in my interview. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you can see the muscles rippling, and that is something you cannot do in a costume, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean to to jump off your point a little bit there, guys. If you look a year forward in 1968 planet of the apes was released and just watching how the guys in those suits moved you don't see any of the same muscle uh, rippling not to mention like the fact that if you look at where the hands brush along the hips you actually see a lot of furware that you would see like you know i know when, when i walk like i hit my same pocket every time and that constant motion will put wear through and I don't think that any costume designer would really go through or really have the wherewithal to kind of think that like, oh, you know what, like this person's this tall. So the gate is going to be, you know, their arm is going to hit at this exact part where they're going to start pulling out for. And if they do, it's not going to be that seamless. I want to kind of jump off the costume thing for a minute because that's something that, you know, kind of gets gets me interested in it. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think that the footage is is authentic. Um, but, you know, going forward, when you look at costume designers and special effects artists at the time, I mean, they all they all agree that they couldn't have ever made anything like this. And, um, you know, even by today's standards, well, I mean, nowadays we've got, you know, CGI to kind of replicate that muscle movement. But 
it would just be it would be so costly and and time consuming to even try to begin a project like that that it just wouldn't really it, it wouldn't be beneficial to anybody um and especially you know given the fact that we know that Patterson was working on a Bigfoot documentary and what we know is that he was having issues even getting funding for that small project so we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars into a costume that just doesn't seem very realistic to me yeah I, I kind of think actually that does play into the concept that it was fake. I mean, the, the thing I just wrote an article about this for my zine that because uh, I'd spent some time actually working with the a believe a third generation copy. Uh, but there's been questioning, but it's an amazingly clear copy from as early as 1974, uh, more than likely 1975, though. And what's amazing is that everything as far as the con man concept uh, is there. It's all right there. But when you analyze the film itself, none of it is there. In particular, the way the foot reacts. The calf muscle musculature thing is very, very clear. Uh, but when you look at the foot, the human foot reacts in a very, very different way. A human foot in a shoe, which was what would be required, reacts in a completely different way to actually being having weight put upon it. And these, this back and forth of, if you look at the, the document itself, the film, it does not have the markers of a fake outside of us placing upon it. Well, it's obviously a guy in a suit. But the backstory and all shows that Patterson 100% had a reason to fake it, had probably some connections who could have faked it. But then when you add Gimlin to it, who is one of the most honest and forthright people I have ever spoken with, it adds that sort of level of authenticity to it. And it, this will always be my, my hill to die on. It's real, but what it's documenting, I have no idea. Chris, I, I love that. How you're like, on the one hand, you're bringing up like, well, there are some things where... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where Patterson, you know, does have a history, but on the other hand, it's like you look at that uh, film, and it's like there's stuff in there that, like, it's real, you know. Uh, I I really like what you brought up there. Um, actually, uh, Nick, I I know you guys were trying to say something at the same time. Uh, Nick, did you have something to add to that, and then maybe we can go over to Tate. Yeah, I just wanted to add on on that real quick. You know. For me, the best thing about the footage is the year, right? 1967. So that puts us in a time period where there's only two possibilities. It's either a suit or it's real. You know, there's no computers. There's no Photoshop. There's no After Effects. There's none of that out there. So when, you, when you're narrowed down to those two possibilities and then you consider, you know, Bill Munn's commentary that the specific costume technology you would have needed to make a suit like that is called stretch fur. And that wasn't even invented yet in 1967, right? And it was mentioned already, you know, Planet of the Apes, you know, they didn't even have stretch fur for that film. And that's why the costumes weren't that form-fitting, right? If you watch that film, it's very, you know, kind of what you would get at like a Halloween costume or, a, you know, a Halloween store today uh, for, you know, an ape suit. So, you know, if you're trying to really, because I've had this argument with so many people, I'm like, 
if you look at it and at first glance you say, oh no, that's a suit. Well, show what is your what is your evidence for it being a suit? Because the evidence for it being a real animal is, you know, we have a plethora of of data from that film site. You know, the film, the muscles, everything. You know, what we've kind of covered so far, the footprint. The footprint cast from the Patterson footage is one of the best casts we have. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence for it being a real animal, um, you know, in addition to just the uh, what's on the film in terms of the musculature, the gait, you know, all, all those things we kind of know about the film when you spend a lot of time with it. And I've I've pretty much gone frame by frame on the film. And there's a lot of evidence that supports it, you know, being a real animal. Nick, awesome thoughts on that. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to do a quick room reset uh, just for anyone who has come in here um, in the last few minutes. So we are doing conversation discussion about the Patterson-Gimlin film tonight. It's being recorded for the Bigfoot Society podcast, and we're sharing our views, uh, whether pro or uh, against, or if you have want to share theories about uh, that would make sense why uh it's real or it's fake. So, uh, Tate, um, I want to give you some, some time to speak there, man. Um, no, I wanted to agree with all those, um, things. And, uh, I don't think Bob Gimlin's lying either. Um, but that doesn't mean he could have been hoaxed if it was a hoax. Um, he may have not have been on it if that was the case. Also, I was hearing somebody, uh, I don't want to say who, um, but they were saying, Roger, I mean, Roger Patterson was very smart and he was actually a really good artist. He was one of the best artists in his family. Um, and so he had the skills to make costumes if he really wanted to. And someone said he could have used horsehide to make the Bigfoot costume. Now, if it was a costume, why would you, you know, make it a female and go that extra mile? I, I think that's pushing it. Um, and it was interesting because I interviewed um, the director from Blair Witch Project, Edward Eduardo Sanchez. And um, one of the things I, I think I asked him or he said, but um, I, I was like, how much is the costume that you guys made for the movie? And that, that movie was made in 2014, you know, around that 2013, 2014. And around that time, it was $100,000. So a hundred thousand dollars in nineteen sixty seven is worth seven hundred and eight thousand seven hundred and ninety dollars in two thousand fourteen. Um so that is a lot of money um <laughs> to be forking over to have a costume made. Um but Roger Patterson's brother Al Diatley, or brother in law I should say, Al Diatley, he was a uh wealthy individual, so um, I'm sure Roger did get a lot of money from Al Diatley, you know, in support of something. And who knows if Roger sent the film to his brother-in-law, Al, and had it somehow developed somewhere with uh, a place that Al knew. Also, um, I can't remember. Roger Patterson actually had a book he wrote and actually sold the rights to that for someone because he needed money and he was able to get money and he got a camera from the money that he sold the rights to his book for. So that's how he got money for the camera. But I don't know. If, I think he rented it and then just never returned the camera back at that point. So 
Yeah, so he rented the uh, camera from Shepard's Camera Shop in Yakima, Washington. Um, there's actually, like, uh, so, again, a lot of my information is from Danny Perez's video from 1996. So, Keith, that's a great watch if you haven't watched it on Sasquatch Archives. So, uh, is, you're right, Roger Patterson did write a book. Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist a year before the filming? And there's actually a drawing sketch in there that shows um, the Sasquatch with, you know, female breasts, which is, you know, very kind of interesting. It's interesting uh, that he had that viewpoint on it. And um, that's that's just know. like the weird yeah. thing, because what I, well, uh, what's his name? I'm forgetting it, but um, it'll come to me later. But, like, Jerry Crew was there. Oh, it talks like, the whole Pacific Northwest expedition. They were all up there, and you had, like, Rene DeHendon and John Green and all those guys in there years prior. And then Roger Patterson wanted to make a Bigfoot film, um, and he wrote a book the year before. And the year after he wrote the book, what happens? He gets a film of a Bigfoot on camera. Um, I mean... It's kind of like what Daniel Perez was saying, playing devil's advocate to show, yes, there is ways that this could be faked or, you know, could have been faked. Um, there's a lot of coincidental things that make it suspect. But at the same time, it's really hard to prove that the creature in the film is fake because it looks so real and it's so hard. The anatomy of the creature is very hard for a person to replicate, even in a suit. Oh, a hundred percent. It's like, um, you know, our friend, uh, Jonathan easily brought up, um, it's just like the muscles you see in that suit is, or, or that creature. It's, it's crazy. It's, I mean, you can't, it's crazy. Yeah. Tyler, I, I want to make sure, uh, if you have anything to, uh, to say, definitely go ahead, my friend. All right. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Awesome. So I have a unique position on this analysis because I'm not sure how many people here may know my background, but I'm actually a special makeup and effects artist. I actually went to school for special makeup and effects and I worked and was taught under the top in the industry. So teachers who were involved with everything from the original Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Spider-Man, everything under the sun, Babylon 5, um, some of those sci-fi titles that you may recognize, as well as the X-Files and Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, those were the people who were my instructors. So I know the materials that we have available to us in the modern day and age, and in fact it's that kind of information base that I try to apply to the paranormal because you don't see a whole lot of people that have that background to be able to dissect these kinds of things. So that being said, I, I know Nick uh, hit the nail on the head with some of the materials. The, yeah, the reality is a lot of those materials that would have made the locomotion of that suit definitely did not exist at that time. And I know that somebody else had brought it up prior that like only a year after this was filmed, which what was 1967, 1968, you have the Planet of the Apes get released. And there is a stark contrast between what a big-budget Hollywood movie was able to pull off and what you see in that film. 
everything from and what I mean by the Patterson-Gimlin film is everything from the muscle contractions um, the breasts as well as I believe you can see a mid-tarsal break inside of the foot locomotion which uh, for anyone who may be listening in that's not familiar with a mid-tarsal break um, apes feet even though we don't necessarily know Bigfoot is an ape there are prints that show its foot anatomy very much operates like an ape which is more so like a human hand so if you look at your hand you can bend your fingers back like the the pivot point from where your fingers are your feet as a human being you don't really have that locomotion in your feet but you do in your hands the foot in that video has that kind of motion that you see within the palm of your hand which adds a whole other layer of complexity because even if you want to say that the bare foot was the actor in some way shape or form you're now getting into the mechanics of breaking that foot in a way that's completely unnatural which is also some all and maybe even not so popular among certain Bigfoot groups. I don't know how people are, you know, in this particular group. But it's true. It does add a strange level of doubt when you look at his writings and when you look at the timeline of him getting this camera. But there's a very interesting underlying current when it comes to paranormal events that's lesser spoken about that very much falls in line with trickster-like elements and high strangeness. And one of the prime examples of what, I'm, what I mean by this is most people here, a lot of people at least, are familiar with John Keel and his work, The Mothman Prophecies. But what is not generally spoken on, typically, in the public eye is that a lot of the strange things Keel experienced in terms of these anomalous phone calls from mysterious men in black that were terrorizing him or knowing his next moves a lot of those are debunked because jim mosley and gray barker who were friends of keel's kind of antagonized him and pulled pranks on him they would hang out get drunk and they would dial him and speak in strange voices and they would get him all riled up and keel believed all this was true and and some of those phone calls made it into his book that people take as canon to actual phenomena but the strangeness of me building up and why i bring this up is gray barker made a very interesting assessment with his hoaxing where not only would they antagonize john keel they would actually call into news stations and act as locals in certain areas and they would pretend like they were witness to a UFO sighting, that there's a UFO over this power plant, etc. And what's so strange about it is they actually found real paranormal phenomena would pop up in the areas they were trying to hoax things. And people that were not connected to them were witnessing the things that they were only thinking about. So, and this happens in more than just ufology or cryptozoology or... It happens in ghost phenomena too, where you see odd things happen in seemingly non-haunted locations that suddenly become haunted 
because you have enough people thinking about it or believing in it. Now, these concepts, like I said, may not be popular amongst people who just strictly view these things as flesh and blood, but there's a, a, a strange double-edged sword when you assess the fact that, yeah, there is that trickster element that casts doubt, and it's not something that hasn't been documented before, where somebody starts saying something, and something genuine happens in connection to what they want or what they seek, and because of it, it actually casts doubt, which keeps people in a liminal state of mind, where you never really know what's the truth, because these things kind of teeter on the in-between. So uh, I guess that's my, on my only insight on this for now. Tyler, man, I'm glad you came up. That was some some awesome insight. Thank you for, for hanging out with us tonight. Um, Real quick. Yeah, Carolina. go ahead, Tate. Um, also, too, not only did Planet of the Apes come out in 68, but also Stephen or Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, came out in 68 as well. Um, and if you guys pull down to refresh uh, my your profile pictures, I have a screenshot of the ape from that movie. Um, and you can see and that one, you know, uh, awards, I think, for, you know, costume and makeup, I believe I could be wrong. But you, there's a huge difference in the ape you're seeing in my profile picture versus um, Patty from the Patterson-Gimlin film, which um, I'm my profile picture now. Um, so yeah, if you guys refresh your page again, now you can see the huge difference um, in the way they look. That's awesome, Tate. Thank you so much for doing that. That, that definitely puts a whole another level to this. I want to give there's a few people that haven't gotten the chance to talk yet i've been keeping a list um mike or greg if you if you want to add anything to the conversation definitely feel free to do so oh i studied all the bad i stuff. know you did greg <laughs> yeah so i got the dirt and i'm gonna prove you all that it's a big fake so if mike wants to go first it's totally fine I always like those guys on the other side of the lake being so polite. Um, it's up to you, bud. If you want to go first, if not, I'll go. I got a couple ideas. Shoot, my friend, go for it. Uh, I still sit sort of on the fence, um, but as it's the iconic film that pretty much got ninety percent of us into this, um, you know, even if it isn't, it's real enough to get enough of us into the woods. On that note. I don't know how many folks are armchair researchers or folks that are out in the field, and there's, we need both. But if you look at the movements through a creek bed and think about moving in winter boots or something like that, and I'll defer to the, the makeup artist specialist or those guys that do the cosplay stuff, but you don't move through that kind of substrate um, that easily. Then go ahead and put a mask on top and try to figure out where you're going. If anybody's ever had to, you know, put a good full face mask on, you're not always seeing the best unless the eyes are really set up. And, you know, you're looking at all of the prosthesis to go with that. And as you guys have mentioned, a lot of that technology wasn't there. So I'm looking at the environmental standpoint and that crick bed and getting through there. And if it isn't close to being some sort of real creature, I don't believe it would be that easy to maneuver, be able to look over a shoulder and not take a face plant, and then how many times would you have to go back and 
and refilm that. So that's that's my thoughts. Um, so I kind of I would say I'm more towards 75 percent uh, towards it being a, a a good film, just because of the environmental aspects. And Tate, I defer to you because you've been down in that area quite a bit, and you guys have spent the most amount of time really rebuilding the structural portions of the the film. Yeah, I guess I'm going to add, but I'll let everybody that hasn't talked go first. Greg, I think uh, I think it's your turn, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's great. I I really I I think it's real, honestly. I I'm just going to present some of the the claims that have been made. Um, and to add to Mike's point about the the substrate and like the walk the walking conditions, and the alleged person in the suit, Bob Hieronymus, had. A glass eye. He couldn't see out of his right eye. He didn't have a right eye. He had a glass eye. So it would make it even that much harder to walk in a suit through the underbrush in the middle of the woods. Anyways. Okay. So we had, uh, of course, we had Bob Hieronymus uh, claiming he was in the suit. Um, but there was a gentleman who claimed that he sold a suit to one Mr. Patterson. And this gentleman uh, owned a costume business. His name is, was Philip Morris. Um, what have I got? Um, so he said that uh, Roger Patterson wanted to buy uh, the gorilla suit, and he wanted it to look more like a Neanderthal um, because he was trying to create a Bigfoot look. So uh, Morris Morris asked what the costume was for. Uh, Patterson said uh, the costume was for a prank, but. But he thought it was odd because the suits were so expensive. And in those days, uh, the cost would have been $450. And that's over $1,000 today. Um, so he just thought it was weird that he was going to be spending all this money on uh, on this suit. And anyways, he... Uh, he sold him the suit and gets a phone call from Patterson a little while later and apparently he asked for extra fur to cover up the zipper better and he was asking how to uh, make the costume look larger and Morris just told him to brush the fur over the zipper and use hairspray to hold it in place and then get some football shoulder pads and stick them uh, <laughs> stick them into the arms to give the illusion of being taller and use stuffing to get more bulk. So, um, I guess what he's saying is that it was all uh, cushioning and uh, I saw one video where he explains how it's like two layers of costuming, like a, a musculature underlayer and then a, a, a flexible outer fur layer and this would give the illusion of moving muscles uh, 
but uh, of course, I know there's much more to the to the PG uh, subject than just the moving muscles. It's the actual proportions of the creature and the mechanical movements of them. Uh, Dr. Krantz actually uh, talked extensively on the, the gait of Patty and how it must have been a, an actual, uh, actual uh, ape-like creature instead of a human. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, like, like, um, who was it said, uh, Patterson, he was, he was broke and he was trying to finance his book on, uh, on the Bigfoot Yeti and trying to finance his, his documentary on, uh, the Bigfoot. So, um, there are all these points that are really against the validity of the sighting, but I mean, these these pictures have been analyzed up and down. I know that what we see on our computer screens isn't even like a good representation of the quality that can be seen in the actual film. Um, so I, I'm a firm <laughs> I'm a firm believer that it's a real uh, a real creature in in the film. But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't say what that creature is. Like, uh, um, yeah. That's awesome, Greg. Is there actually, you said there's like video, uh, there's a video interview of this guy, this costume maker talking about it, or was it just something you read? Yeah, Philip Morris. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's some YouTube stuff on there. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, Philip Morris. Yeah, I, I can uh, send that over too. If uh, I was, if ironically enough, Greg, I was watching that like on my lunch break today. That guy's, uh, he's a character. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. Um, the way he looks at the audience just says, I'm full of shit. Excuse the language. Yeah, I mean, just the way that Philip Morris. <laughs> I, Disclaimer. I <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Jeremiah does not agree that Philip Morris is full of shit. I, if anyone listens to the podcast, it's like, you'll know the disclaimer is coming. But yeah, anyways, I know it's just making yeah. fun. <laughs> he's just a, he's a, he's a cartoon character quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there is an interesting aspect that uh, to the costume thing that I've always bugged me. Uh, when you look at a costume that is available for rental, it is going to be rented again. And there has been no documentation of any gorilla costume or even a specifically Bigfoot costume that resembles it even in the slightest, even from people who have tried to create it. When you look at the uh, Mayaka uh, skunk ape photos, people recognize that, even though it was an Asian uh, costume that had never been available in the U.S., so I think that really speaks to it not being a costume. Of course, there is the flip side of that. If you were going to have a setting to show off a costume that hid just enough that it would make it difficult to discern certain things that might be give it away, you know, a dry creek bed where you get a good shot of it, but you don't get close up necessarily like on the knees for most of it, just from the back. And you don't necessarily get really good overall footage but you do get a segment where it is going away from you 
which is automatically going to uh, deal have issues with uh, things like simple focus even. And on the grain on that film actually will actually give you illusions in it, um, which is really great if you ever actually try to move off film grain. It's weird. It was the perfect location to choose to shoot that. And the way that it walked off and the amount of time all would speak towards being uh, a planned shoot with the exception of the incredibly bad camera work, which, you know, the cinematographer in me is just crying when I watch it. So it's one of those things. It's again, it's, there's so many things that say it's fake. There are so many things that indicate it's real. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The camera shaking was brought up several times uh, (laughs) as a, as a tool to, to uh, decrease the chances of people disproving it. Doesn't the mouth open though as well? Didn't they confirm that? That uh, I think in three five two when the when the the head turns, the mouth actually opens. So he would have to have paid for not only this futuristic Sasquatch suit, but a headpiece that had you know the ability to have like a separate mouthpiece to open and close. Though naturally, if it were a uh, a hood type outfit where it was actually connected to the shoulder there would be natural stretching when you would turn your head either direction which would make it look like it could uh, open the mouth and you know again madness yeah i was gonna say and if it was a costume um i mean people always say oh it would be so hard to walk there um but what people don't actually realize like if you visit the film site today over the time the um where the actual sandbar is that patty walked it's actually up above the creek level where the creek is today so it's actually flat sand there i mean and back then it would have been the same height as it is now um and it's pretty soft sand to walk on um even with floppy costume you know feet um it wouldn't be very hard i mean there would be some debris because there was a flood uh, in 64 but I don't think it'd be impossible, uh, you know, to walk in a costume. But also the fact, I think, because it was all sand, um, they said when they were actually downwind. Yeah, they were downwind of her. So there's, I don't think she couldn't have smelled. She, she wouldn't have smelled them. Um, plus, when they came around, they startled her because she was actually drinking from the creek. So you got guys on horses riding on a sand where there's, there wasn't a lot of rock. It was all sand. Um, so there's not going to make a lot of noise. Not only that, but she's not going to smell them. And if she's drinking water, she has the, you know, the sound of the Creek in her ear and that could startle her. Um, because I think Roger, Roger's horse fell at the initial sighting. And then that's when he grabbed the camera and then the other pack horse that Bob Gimlin was, carrying ran off and he let go because i think it was hooked onto him somehow or he was holding it and he could have got yanked off he drew his rifle i believe and let go of the other horse yeah he drew so his rifle a, and let go of the other horse he was a professional cowboy so he knew how to handle a horse very well yeah i don't think roger did and funny enough those horses were actually uh bob Hieronymus's horses um yeah, <laughs> wait what was his neighbor right <laughs> yeah they were neighbors they were actually neighbors during the time. Uh, they were actually at one point friends, believe it or not. 
And those were uh, Bob Harlan's pack horses that they, they were using. Um, and it was Gimlin's truck. So there's like other things that make it seem like Bob Hieronymus could have been there or not been there. Um, but like I said, the film was one thing, but everything that leads up to it and after is a whole nother, whole nother ball game. I think one of the things that also needs to be considered is the, uh, the footprint castings <clears throat> taken, obviously, subsequently. I think it was a number of days after when they actually got out there back to cast those prints. And that's another interesting element. And I think everyone's brought up some really good points about, you know, certain things that are sketchy, certain things that make sense. I mean, Tyler brought in that sort of paranormal angle, which I think is really interesting that certainly isn't really considered in a lot of the more traditional circles. So I I do appreciate, you know, that kind of perspective, but um, that footprint element I think is interesting because that then gets involved with people that look at casts, you know, people like Meldrum and, and Cliff that, you know, sort of uh, look at those casts and, you know, are able to say, you know, these look pretty real in terms of, you know, the foot morphology and mid-tarsal break and all those sorts of things. And and I think the diversity of the casts that were taken there from that site, you know, you have multiples where it was sort of that flat, iconic foot image, but then there's also one where you could see that mid-tarsal break. I actually have one copy of a Patterson Kimlin cast that was a uh, it's like a second generation copy. So it would have been a copy of an original. Um, I'm not sure which one it is, but it's, it's one of the many, you know, that were in that sort of line of tracks. And I, I mean, I don't know if depending on weather conditions, obviously it hadn't been rained out all that much. If they were able to get the cat, they were able to cast those prints in such um, good condition, you know, even with a few days of deterioration, but that just adds, like I said, another element to the sort of, um, intrigue behind it because obviously if they're faking a suit you know creating a really great suit even to modern standards they would also have to go beyond that to fake footprint evidence which is maybe even more difficult i don't know i mean obviously they're bigfoot footprint hoaxes have been known and you have the the ray wallace stuff which it's pretty easy to tell those aren't really very legit looking once you kind of do a little bit of preliminary research on how the feet work and everything so it seems like a lot of effort but just to kind of go back to my original point, I think it doesn't really matter what happens with that piece of footage. It's uh, it's kind of a moot point almost in, in my view. So, yeah, I think the footprint is definitely an interesting area, though, too. I think it was also uh, tested and proven that the impressions left by Patty would have had to be, uh, and they, they used Bob Hieronymus as the uh, the what do you call it, the, the like counter, the test subject. So they use Bob Hieronymus's weight in the same substrate as Patty did, and it was proven that Patty must have weighed four times as much as Bob Hieronymus. So, well, I don't think that. Bob Hieronymus has ever been to the site, though. Um, I'll, send, I'll find that YouTube video that I saw, and I'll put it in i'll give it to jeremiah for the show notes yeah and that that brings up a great point greg if so everyone who's been you know looking at stuff for tonight if you have resources uh youtube videos articles whatever uh definitely send those to me on dm on instagram or or wherevs and um i'll definitely put those in the uh the show notes Discord. Yeah, are you on the Discord? That's right. 
<laughs> and if you're not on the Discord and you want to be, um, just click uh, one of our profiles and find out how to reach us, and we'll get you set up. Totally, totally. We've got about 10 minutes left uh, until the end of the episode, just because, you know, we have people on the Eastern time zone. We want to be respectful of that. So if anyone has any closing uh, uh, things to say, definitely go right ahead. I just want to mention uh, real quick. I don't know if you wanted to get into like, you know, the anomalies of the film. Uh, but the one thing that always, that I always think about um, is you know, it appears to be like there could be something that Patty is either carrying in her left hand, holding in her left hand, or even something that's hanging uh, that's hanging on her left side. Um, I know that's this kind of uh, files under the controversial anomalous elements of the film. Um, but if you spend some time on the film, there's a few frames where it looks like there's something on her left side or in her left hand so could be a rock could be i don't know but uh i think it's pretty interesting yeah nick i know exactly what you're talking about i would really um that image artifact um i would if you haven't yet i would totally oh. recommend to read that article by bill munns and jeff meldrum on um the relic hominid uh inquiry it, it goes into detail about that and like so many other things you may have already checked it out as well the Cliff Crooks uh, investigation of the film. He did some enhancements and thought there was a, like a, what do they say, like a bottle opener shaped um, metal tag hanging off her, her side or something. I've seen some analysis that actually looks like there's something around her neck. Like she's carrying some that's like some kind of satchel. And in those frames of the film, when she takes her hand off it, her left hand, when it's swinging, that's when you see like if it is something like a satchel or a pouch come come off, uh, like off her side and you see it. And then uh, her her hand swings back onto it. Um, yeah, pretty. If, if that's if any like that, anything like that's happening on the film, then I, you know, obviously then you ha really have to doubt a uh, suit, you know, so. Yeah, and, and I think that's valid, too, because you would think if someone was overtly trying to hoax something, they absolutely wouldn't have these, like, very modern elements where it's carrying something. But but you are right, like, and, and there's plenty of Bigfoot reports where they are holding odd things, you know, some of them more anomalous than others, everything from carrying balls of light in their hand that you, you can find multiple reports on to just carrying odd objects, whether they be old rust, rusty muskets even, or wearing belts or carrying sticks like clubs. It, it is interesting. That is an interesting element. And I'll have to go back and actually see if I can pick that up because it's been so long since I've seen it. So that's good insight. Alex, maybe you can talk to this. Wasn't the Mogion monster uh, a club-wielding Bigfoot? Um, I'm not sure. I think some of the early reports did describe that. Kind of was uh, like the 1930s and 40s when it was this Boy Scout camp there in, in the Mogion Rim in Arizona where they were having you know, their camp stuff was walking around in their camp at night. It was sort of typical Bigfoot 
behavior for people out in the wilderness that have experienced these sorts of things. I think there was a report or two with the club, but it's, you know, I think as Tyler was saying, it was just, there's, there are reports here and there of Bigfoot's holding things, carrying things. So I don't, it wasn't specifically kind of associated with that. But one thing I did want to mention about uh, just the PGF film is we're kind of closing up here, just the, uh, what it spawned. So with, and, you know, people that are more, in tune with, you know, kind of filmmaking side of it or, or experts in film and, and that sort of technology, how once you get the different copies, you know, once generations of, of a film are copied, artifacts can get at, added in there. You know, you may have a speck of dust that might be in there during a transfer and that creates an object that might appear to be something. I think there's been uh, certain generations of the film, you know, copies that have had that sort of uh, thing happen where people say, well, this is something, but not only that, but, just how it's created controversy. Obviously we talked a little bit about, I think somebody mentioned it earlier, the bluff Creek massacre theory and the sort of insane things that are brought up in regards to certain aspects of the film, because I think one of the copies had a sort of reddish tint to it. And there was what looked to be a, a pool of blood, I guess, if you want to do it interpretation wise, that I think MK Davis, who has done some good work on the film proposed that, and that theory has been kind of trotted out time and time again and uh, people get very say aggressive when somebody decides to kind of try to debunk sort of theory like that and it's just interesting because like i said uh, connecting back to what i was talking about earlier with you know the, the connection you know whether or not be just the iconic representation of bigfoot being the patty walk or just the theories that it spawned in its wake and you know the controversy at the end of the day we're still arguing about the pgf film you know whether it's the bluff creek massacre or not so it's just its impact is certainly there and will be felt in this field pretty much forever. So I think that's interesting. And Alex. Oh, go ahead, Tate. Go ahead. I was going to say if a massacre was real, I don't think a lot of us would be here to be perfectly honest with you. Cause at that case, it would have been proven Bigfoot was real, you know, and I don't think the, uh, Paxton Gimlin film would have as much significance as it does now interesting thought on that tate definitely uh and i mean that that alone uh that's a whole different discussion as well but i think this has been a super successful uh chat tonight and it's crazy to think you know you had two two gentlemen making a film so long ago and we're still talking about it today i mean uh, what is that about 50 60 years later it's it's crazy stuff but i just wanted to thank you all for for hanging out in the room tonight everyone uh giving some great uh thoughts about the patterson gimlin film um you know definitely check out everyone in the show notes i'll be putting some links about the people that were hanging out with me on stage uh definitely give them a follow um and yeah if you're if you're new to the bigfoot society room definitely uh, tap where it says Bigfoot Society at the top of this room. Follow this uh, club for more discussions like this in the future. And uh, thanks again to everyone for hanging out tonight. Um, I am going to go ahead and uh, close out the room unless there were uh, any other uh, things that need to be said. But uh, at this time, I think I'm going to close it out. So Cool. Sweet. All right. Have a good one, okay. guys. Later, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good night.
The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Bigfoot Society. Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone. Thank you.